Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said before, we are continuing our Killing Jesus sermon series. Uh, We're taking that name from a book that we read that gives us a little bit of historical background on what is going on around the, especially the last week of Jesus's life. So starting with Vicar Polzine's sermon last week, we are taking it day by day, uh, the last few days of Jesus's life. So Vicar Polzine took us last week through Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus enters Jerusalem, returns to Jerusalem after being gone for a while, and is hailed as a hero. They throw a parade for him. Now, Vicar was preaching that sermon while the rest of us pastors were out in Arizona. Um, it, was, it was a pretty difficult place to be, but uh, while we were there, we, we did uh, take in a few rays of sun. Uh, but for the most part, uh, we used our time quite well planning for the future, presenting at a conference, talking about team ministry. It was a great experience, but I do have to say I was just a little bit disappointed. Because when we returned to Frankenmuth on Saturday evening, there was no parade for us at all. There were no palm branches strewn across the road or anything like that. I suspect that's because we left all the palm branches on the palm trees uh, back in Phoenix. But nevertheless, it's good to be back. And I think the vicar did a fantastic job of holding down the fort while we were gone. And perhaps a bit more. I was particularly impressed by his Word for Wednesday devotion, where he compared Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem with the presence of God returning to the temple after he had been gone for many years. And so I was a little bit inspired by that to to continue talking in that vein. And so tonight we are going to be talking about the event that happens the next day on Monday as Jesus comes back into town and goes up to the temple and does something rather remarkable. But before we talk about what Jesus did that day, I I thought it might be helpful to give you a little bit of an idea of what the temple is and what is going on there. So what you see in front of you on the screen is a painting of, of what the temple mount looked like during the time of Jesus. The mount was raised, elevated above the rest of Jerusalem, And it was three acres in area. It's quite enormous. Perhaps you can see the paintings of the people there. They're quite small. Uh, This section here, where the arrow is pointing, just right outside the walls of the temple, that was known as the Court of the Gentiles. That was where non-Jews were invited to come and to pray to the one true God. They were not allowed to go any further than that, though. In fact, on every entrance... There were signs in multiple languages saying, if you are not Jewish and you enter here, you only have yourself to blame for your impending death. And that wasn't a joke. They took it quite seriously. But if you were Jewish, you would usually enter into this court, which is known as the court of women, because this is as far as women were allowed to go in that time. Now, you might be able to tell that it's quite a large space from the painting, But you'd probably still be surprised to know that this area of the temple could hold up to 6,000 worshipers at a time. This is just an enormous place. If you go from the court of women a little farther then, you enter through the, the gate of Nicanor. And that leads into the court of Israel, and then the court of the priests, and then the temple building itself. From that gate to the back wall of the temple 
is the length of an American football field. So you start to get the idea that the temple is, is enormous. And so it's no wonder that when the disciples first come to Jerusalem with Jesus, they say, Master, what magnificent buildings. The temple was quite magnificent, not just because of its sheer size or because of its architecture, but especially because the temple to the Jew was the most important place on the planet. This is where God promised to come and to be with his people. And as such, it became the central locus of Jewish religion and worship, particularly for the festivals. And the granddaddy of all festivals, the Super Bowl of festivals, was Passover. The festival that commemorated God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. Now, as far as we can tell, for most of the year, the population of Jerusalem was 80,000 people crammed into one square mile. By comparison, we have, what, about 4,500 people in Frankenmuth, over three square miles. So it's already pretty packed, but during Passover, the population would swell to about 250,000 people. So picture Main Street during Autofest. And then take away the classical cars and replace them with donkey carts or something like that. And then double or or triple the amount of people. This starts to give you an idea of, of the atmosphere in Jerusalem and particularly in the temple courts during Passover. Now why were there so many people there? Well it's because if you were able to and you were a Jew, you were required to come to Jerusalem during Passover and to go to the temple and to make a sacrifice. And they took this very seriously, but it was not easy. Setting aside the difficulty of traveling before the invention of classic cars and things like that, once you get to Jerusalem, it's a very expensive experience. And there are two reasons for that. The first reason is that the animals that are for sale there for sacrifice are incredibly expensive. Now, technically, you were allowed to bring your own animal from home to sacrifice, But even if you were able to do that, oftentimes the temple priest would look at your animal and as they examined it, they would find some sort of deformity, whether it was really there or not. And so more often than not, you would have to buy an animal there anyway at very inflated prices. The effective policy was in a sense very similar to when you go to a movie theater and you see a sign that says, no outside food or drink. And then you come in and you look at the menu at the concession stand and you realize that you are going to be paying $8 for a bucket of popcorn that probably costs about 10 cents to produce. The second reason this was so expensive was because you couldn't even use your own money, typically. The normal currency of the day was the Roman denarius, which bore the image of the emperor. And as such, it was not allowed in the temple. And so the temple provided the very necessary um, service of exchanging that money for money that was acceptable, the Roman denarius for the temple shekel. But the rate of exchange was, was rather inflated. In fact, we think it was about four to one. So that's like going to the movie theater, seeing the concessions, thinking to yourself, well, I hope I can afford this, and then having someone tell you, actually, sir, your money is no good here. Tell you what, though, you give us $4 of your money, we'll give you $1 in theater money that you can go spend over there. 
And so this is, this is quite a burden for many people. And you might be wondering, how did this come to be? Well, the short answer is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ruling elite party that were in charge of the temple. Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law, oversaw everything. And I have a short video here that will give us a little bit more information about that. At the Passover celebration, a quarter million Jews descend on the temple in Jerusalem, all intent on giving a sacrifice to God. But Jewish leader Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas control the process, ensuring they got their cut. And all of the concessions in the temple area were controlled by Annas, Caiaphas, and company. The Sadducean aristocracy, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees controlled all the concessions in the temple. They got a kickback from all the concessions there. And so Caiaphas and Annas and, and the Sadducees get money every time a sacrificial lamb is purchased at the temple. They get money every time money changes hands at the temple. And they use this money to take care of the temple, but mostly to pad their own personal wealth and to siphon some of the funds off to Rome so that they can keep their positions of power. And so for this reason, in the book Killing Jesus, it's suggested that your average Jewish worshiper would come and would quietly seethe with anger as they did business with the temple priest. So this begins to give us just a bit of an idea of the situation that Jesus is walking into when he comes to the temple that fateful Monday morning. Now Jesus had been to the temple several times before. There's really nothing that suggests that, that anything was different that day as far as what was going on. But that day would prove to be very different. Because Jesus came and decided to undertake a, a very bold action. This is how Mark tells the story. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, you know, I think if you're like me, you've heard this story so many times, you don't really think too much about it, but, but picture what's going on here. Jesus walks into literally the holiest place in the world, and he starts throwing things, holy things that do not belong to him. And so most of the people that witness this begin to think that Jesus is crazy. Why would he do this? Well, there are perhaps many answers to that question, but I think one of the best ones is that Jesus was fed up with the oppression of the people. Now, the book, Killing Jesus, suggests that Jesus was upset with the economic oppression of the people, that the people were being exploited for their money. And that was certainly taking place, and perhaps Jesus does take issue with that, but, but what Jesus says seems to indicate that he is more concerned with the spiritual oppression of the people. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So, first, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, who says that the temple is meant to be a house of prayer for everybody, all nations. Now, scholars are generally agreed 
that all of this buying and selling that Jesus took issue with and, and uprooted was taking place in the court of Gentiles, that big area around the rest of the temple that I showed you earlier. And especially during Passover, this area would become so crowded that it was impossible for non-Jews to come and to pray to the true God. And so Jesus takes issue with that. Then Jesus quotes Jeremiah, saying that they have made the temple into a den of robbers. Now again, Jesus isn't really saying that they are robbing the people of their money primarily, although again, that, that is happening. But Jesus seems to be saying so much more. Jesus is taking issue with the fact that the high priest and the Sadducees are selling salvation, that they are peddling God's pardon. And so it's no surprise that in his commentary on this section, Martin Luther says that this is precisely what was happening in his day as the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences, charging money for and making a profit from something that God wanted to give for free. The high priests are encouraging the people to find their salvation in sacrifices and not in God. They're telling people that it doesn't really matter where you put your faith or where you put your trust. What matters is where you put your money. It doesn't really matter where your heart is or what's in it. It matters where your wallet is and what's in it. But Jesus had said before that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so all of this is leading the people to place their trust and their heart in the wrong place. In the temple and in its buy and sell culture instead of in God. And in fact, this is precisely what is happening in Jeremiah's time when Jeremiah says that they have made the temple a den of robbers. They had made an idol out of the gift that God had given them in the temple. And they had lost sight of God. Now we can do this too, I think. We can place our trust in the wrong thing and in our church attendance or in how we serve in the community or, or in our superior knowledge or wisdom. But notice, and maybe you noticed this, I really kind of noticed this for the first time as I read through it this time around. Jesus doesn't just cast out the sellers, but also the buyers. Jesus shows us that the entire system is broken. He doesn't really seem to point out one party as the, the only ones at fault. Everybody is at fault who places their trust in anything or anyone but God. And as Vicar shared with us so wonderfully in his devotion last week, the new temple is Jesus himself. And so Jesus comes and he upends everything that is going on. And, and what does this what does this produce? Well, for one thing, I think you can say it cements his role, his status as a man of the people. The book Killing Jesus suggests that when Jesus goes in and does all of this in the temple, everybody that's looking on is thinking, man, I've always wanted to do that. Jesus is standing up to the Sadducees. But to the Sadducees, this is a terrible thing. Because Jesus has challenged their authority, which is supposed to go unchallenged. Jesus has stood in the way of the flow of money from the people to them and to Rome. And so Jesus must be killed. 
Vicar said last week in his sermon that Palm Sunday was probably the event that sealed Jesus' fate. And, and perhaps he's right, but if there was any doubt after that, the nail has been hit into the coffin by this point. Because Jesus has now given them justification to arrest him. And they don't do it yet because of those crowds. They're afraid of rioting. But they know that they must turn a prophet. Even if it means killing a prophet. Now the thing is, Jesus knows this too. And in fact, you might say that this is one of the reasons that Jesus does what he does that day. He knows that as he is setting free the sacrificial animals and the doves, that his actions are saving their lives and costing him his own. Apparently from the Temple Mount, you have a pretty good view of Golgotha, the hill where Jesus died. It's said that Golgotha was so close to the city walls that those inside the city could hear the cries of those being crucified outside of the city. And so on that Monday morning, Jesus set his eyes on that hill, knowing that in just a few days, he would be hanging there, and he would breathe his last. But he did it anyway. He not only saw the oppression of the Sadducees on the people, and then stood up to it and confronted it, Jesus, with his actions in the temple that day, invited the oppression of the Sadducees upon himself. He willingly took on their injustices and even gave up his life, dying for the sellers and the buyers, dying for his own executioners, dying for you and for me. Lent is a time in the church year where we are invited to repent of our sins, where we are called to place our entire heart, all of our trust, in God and in God alone. So I'd like you to ask yourself tonight, is there anything in me, any false religion in me, that I think maybe is from God but that Jesus wants to purge from my heart? Is there anything that I have allowed to come between me and true worship of God? Is there anything that I fear, anything that I love, anything that I trust more than God? Stand with me today in those crowded temple courts and look down at the hill where Jesus died because it was there that he cleansed your heart, that he purged it from every impurity, every sin. It is there that Jesus took on the oppression not only of the Sadducees, not only of the Roman government, but of the devil himself and of the sin that was breaking our backs. Jesus took the burden upon himself and set us free. And so in this Lenten season, I invite you to return to God, to give him your entire heart, to give him everything, and to find in Jesus Christ, your Savior, a house of prayer for all nations. In Jesus' name, amen.